chapter 4 is where we're going to start, which is kind of a lie. We're going to start in 1 John chapter 2, but we'll get to 1 John chapter 4. You know, many people today confuse love and acceptance. They see acceptance as a synonym for love in many ways, but it's really not true because acceptance is based on an arbitrary criteria. I mean, acceptance can be based on, you know, your hairstyle or your taste in music. It could be based on the kind of car you drive, the socioeconomic strata you live in. It could be your proficiency in sports. It could be your ethnicity or, worse, your views on ethnicities. Uh, That could be the criteria for being accepted. Love is not like that at all. Genuine biblical love never, is never based on style, on taste, on ability, on social position, intellect, ethnicity, or any other arbitrary standard. Acceptance often requires foolish behavior. How many high school students and college students did things that they regretted afterward in order to be accepted by a particular peer group, only to find out that a year after they graduated, they didn't talk to most of those people ever again? Many people I've known throughout the years have made life-altering choices in their high school or college years for the temporary acceptance of a group of people they thought was actually permanent love. A group of athletes at a particular college decided it would be cool to develop uh, some camaraderie among the teammates by branding themselves. So they got a piece of iron and they fashioned it into the, the form that they wanted. Uh, I think it was an omega sign, actually. They heated it up with a torch till it was red hot, took turns holding each other down while somebody took that red hot brand and seared it into their shoulder, burning them so severely that it created a forever scar in the shape of that sign. Sounds cool, huh? Acceptance requires, often requires foolishness. Love never requires one to be foolish. Love never rejoices in foolishness. Acceptance only lasts as long as the criteria remains consistent. Once the criteria changes or is no longer upheld, then the acceptance ends. Love never changes. Never changes with the winds of culture. It's never considered uh, uh, the, the, way, the winds of change as whether or not you can continue to love. It doesn't end when feelings change. It's permanent. The one who practices biblical love loves at all times. The confusion goes on further still when a group of people reflect uh, or reject rather the efforts to love them unless they come up with unconditional acceptance of their beliefs and actions. So, for instance, we've seen this lived out in our own society multiple times. Unless you accept somebody's perverted lifestyle, you don't love them. If you don't accept somebody's gender identification, then you're considered unloving, unkind, even hateful. In fact, if you say anything about their their wrong view of their gender, then that's considered hate speech. 
It's not true. According to love, love even corrects. Love even disciplines. Because you love. The, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. If he doesn't discipline you, you're not really his children. Unfortunately, the confusion between love and acceptance has made its way into Christianity. And the arbitrary nature of acceptance has been applied to people within the church and the way they practice love for their brothers and sisters. They love their brothers and sisters as long as they adhere to some arbitrary criteria. Many of you aren't aware of these kinds of things, but... uh, There are churches that if you don't use a particular translation of the Bible, you're not welcome there. That's not love. That's an arbitrary standard that the Bible doesn't set. Some will love you as long as you agree with their non-salvific theology. And if you disagree with their non-salvific theology, then they don't love you. They'll love you as long as you affirm their same convictions, but if you don't share their same convictions, then they may not show you any love. They'll love you as long as they approve of your choices. But as soon as they stop approving of your choices, then, well, love goes along with it. They withhold love when you fail to live up to their expectations or otherwise disappoint them. For instance, some consider it unloving when we practice church discipline. And they have withdrawn their love for us for that reason. Even when we try to explain, well, we discipline because we love. We're following the scripture. Jesus told us to do this. God gave us the example whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. These attitudes are sadly common within the church, but they don't reflect biblical love. Godly love, biblical love, Christ-like love, Christian love is never conditional. It's never I'll love you if or I'll love you when. It's I love you. Doesn't mean we don't have standards and expectations for people. We still have standards and expectations that we hope are based on the Scripture. But it does mean that we don't stop loving people when they fail to meet those expectations. Some of you parents have a child who has, this will be shocking, some of you have had a child who have violated the standards of your home. Maybe once, maybe twice. But that violation, though disappointing, and even maybe heartbreaking, and it may require correction and discipline, it does not stop you from loving them. And if it does stop you from loving them, you have no idea what it means to truly be a parent and what love really means. Many Christians appear to treat loving others as if it's an option. We can choose whether to love one another. It's like picking paint. I like this shade of gray, but I don't like this shade of gray. I like this Christian, but I don't like this Christian. I love this shade of beige, but I don't love this shade of beige. I love these Christians, but I don't love these Christians. Others treat loving one another like it's the ideal. You know, to love one another is a good idea. 
but it's not really an expectation. It's like, you know, going to college is a good idea, but it's not necessary for everybody to go. Love is never presented to us as an option. As a Christian, we are not given the option whether to love one another. It is required and is expected. Loving one another is not merely the activity of a Christian that we engage in. It's the defining characteristic of who we are. The commands to love God and to love one another are repeated throughout the Scripture, reiterated more than any other command the Bible gives. John writes this letter, a short letter, of 1 John, in large part to show that Christians, that loving one another is an essential characteristic of who you are. He's already spoken about the importance of love in 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 9. He said, To the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. And the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I want you to catch that. The one who hates his brother is so blind they don't even realize how blind they are. They're stumbling around in the darkness and they don't even realize it. Go to chapter 3. Verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And then now to our text in 1 John chapter 4. We'll start reading with verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. As John writes this letter, in chapter 4, he is taking the command to love to a new level. He's already shown us that we are to love one another and this is the sign that one is a believer But in chapter 4, he says, how you love one another is directly related to how you love God. We'll see that you can't say, I love God, while hating your brother or sister. God says it's not true. He'll show us in our text that loving one another is our great responsibility as well as our greatest testimony. 
We'll start with verses 7 and 8, and that is loving one another is the distinctive mark of the Christian. Loving one another is the distinctive mark of the Christian. Verse 7 begins with, Beloved, let us love one another. John's not asking a question here. He's not saying, Beloved, do you think we should love one another? He's not making a suggestion. Brethren, it would be nice if you loved one another. He's not offering advice. Brethren, I think it would be good for you to love one another. This is the force of a command. Brethren, love one another. The apostolic authority that John has gives us the the force of the command that this is what we are to do. He gives no option for the Christian. It's not a take it or leave it. It's not a you can choose to obey or it doesn't really matter if you do or not. John uses the phrase love one another three times in this passage. In verse 7, beloved, let us love one another as a command. In verse 11, he says, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Here it's a cause and effect expectation. If God loves us this way, then we should love one another. And then the the third time is in verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Here it's used as a hypothesis. If you love one another, here's what's true. Let us love one another. That command should bring to mind the commands that Jesus gave. John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. These are not arbitrary commands. They're not just commands for command's sake. Jesus doesn't just have rules for rules' sake. When I was growing up, before my parents got divorced, they had a real strong aversion to me or my three brothers putting our elbows on the table at dinner time. And it wasn't just suggested that we remove our elbows from the table. It was get hit in the elbow with whatever happens to be closest to a parent. It could have been a knife. It could have been a bottle. It could have been a plate. It could have been anything. And that's what's wrong with my elbow. It just now hit me. No, it hit me before. When we would ask, why is it wrong to put your elbows on the table? Here's the response we would get. If you're invited to dinner at the White House, are you going to put your elbows on the table? I remember thinking, probably. (laughs) I grew up thinking there was an actual possibility that I would get invited to the White House for dinner. I don't think I'm going to get invited now. In fact, I'm booked for the next four years, so... I'm probably not going to get an invitation anytime soon. John's command to love one another is not arbitrary. It's not a result of reading Emily Post. That's who said you shouldn't put your elbows on the table, by the way. Okay, make a note. Martha Stewart. It's not a... Never mind. Never mind, never mind, 
John has a good logical reason for the command to love one another. He says it in the next phrase. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. We are to love one another because God is the source of love. And if we are not loving one another, we are not pointing people to the source. We are to practice godly love because it proclaims the goodness and the existence of God. One commentator said it this way, quote, The person who is born of God is a window through which the love of God shines into the world. End quote. I love that picture. We are windows and God shines his love through us to the rest of the world. Biblical love is not innate within us. We don't, we're not born, no man is born with the capacity to love with godly biblical love. It is only through the transformation of the Holy Spirit who dwells within the believer that we can then become conduits of God's love to the world. That capacity belongs to us who have been saved. Verse 7 goes on, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. As children of God, we are to reflect Him, and the most obvious way we reflect God is by loving one another. We've heard this before. Most of us who have been saved have heard it before, and it can get so familiar that we stop hearing it but look at the stark language of the bible love is from god and everyone who loves is born of god now when it says everyone who loves it is it is assumed in the text that we are using god's dictionary when we come up with the definition for love The world has its own definition of love, and it is far from God's definition. In fact, the world's definition of love is much closer to the definition for acceptance than it is to the definition of love. God has revealed to us multiple times in his word how much he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We don't love according to the world. We love according to God. For the Christian, loving one another with Christ-like, biblical, godly love is our badge. It, it is our identification papers. It's our, it's our proof of heavenly citizenship. Loving one another is the Christian's official birth certificate. It's the stamped copy that says you are a citizen of heaven. And only those who are born again actually know God. Therefore, they're the only ones that can love. Many people claim to know God. But they lack the DNA that proves any relationship. For the believer, loving one another is that DNA. That proves the relationship. Many people claim to love God, but they're using their own definition. They say, yeah, I love one another, but let me define how I love one another. We don't have the freedom to do that. 
Loving one another is not simply a good Christian discipline. Well, I pray, I read my Bible, I go to uh, Bible studies, I try to love one another. It's not a Christian discipline. Loving one another or not loving one another reveals the condition of your heart. It's a revelation of you. It's not a habit. Your heart has either been transformed because you belong to God and you love one another, or it remains dead in its trespasses and sins because it's revealed that you lack love for one another. And in case the reader were to miss what he was saying in verse 7, he makes it clear in verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Don't miss it. Don't blow past this. Jesus, is, or, or John rather, is not using hyperbole here. He's not exaggerating to make a point. What he is saying is very important. If you do not love one another, then you don't know God. Because God is love. And if you knew God, then love would be spread abroad in your heart and it would flow out to those around you. John is not blowing things out of proportion to make this sound more important than it really is. John is not a parent telling this kid to keep his elbows off the table. John is making a very strong, very pointed statement. If you do not love one another, then you don't know God. It's that simple. It's that serious. For a man to say that he knows God, well, having a list of Christians that he does not love is like a man saying that he knows how to perform surgery but doesn't know what a scalpel is. The word of God is clear. We are to love one another. And if we don't love one another, then we don't know God. We don't understand God. And we have not been born again. Because if you truly know God, you'll love one another. When we are born again, at the moment we were born again, we began to take on the traits of our Heavenly Father. We begin to resemble Him, though it will always be imperfect until we get to heaven. We take on the characteristics of our Father. And loving one another is the distinctive mark of those who know God, for God is love. I want you to understand, love is not an attribute of God. God is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, loving. He is loving, but that is not an attribute. It is a characteristic. It is his nature. Love is not just one of God's activities. God creates. God uh, forgives. God heals. God loves. It's not just an activity. It's his nature. Everything he does, he does out of love. He creates out of love. He forgives out of love. He restores out of love. He disciplines out of love. He even condemns out of love. When he judges, commands, restricts, liberates, or does whatever he does, God does it out of love because he can't do anything that's not done out of love because he is love. Love is not just something God does, it's something God is. 
It's the nature of God to love. In the same way, when you're born again, God has given you a new nature. And that new nature is to love one another. We still have a sin nature. So we understand there's a battle there. That's why John writes 1 John. Who's winning the battle? John can authoritatively say, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, and the one who does not love does not know God. Loving one another according to God's definition or not loving one another according to God's definition proves whether or not a person actually knows God. Number two, we only know love because God sacrificed his son. We only know love because God sacrificed his son. Look at verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. John expands on what the love of God looks like. And therefore, it should characterize how we love one another. And he is the love of God here shown through real, substantial actions of God. God could have just stated it in his word, right? He could have said, I love you. But without any action, how do you know? If God doesn't show it through substantial actions that he loves us, there's no really way for us to know that he does. But he does by sending his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. God showed us his love by giving us his son to meet our greatest need. We needed forgiveness. We needed purification from sin. We needed redemption. We needed grace. We needed patience. We needed kindness. We needed someone to love us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sin. We needed someone who would show us unconditional love. We needed to know that he would never leave us or forsake us. And God did this by sending his unique, perfect, one-of-a-kind only son to meet those needs. The act of love required tremendous sacrifice on the part of the father and the son. The son would lay aside the glory that he had shared from eternity past. He would endure the scorn of mankind. He would put on the form of a servant. Though completely innocent, he would be declared guilty. Though completely sinless, he would have your sin and my sin dumped upon him, held responsible for our sin. Though he showed great love, he would be shown great hatred. Though the creator of life, he would be put to death. Sacrifice of the Father as well, sacrifice that fellowship that he had always enjoyed with the Son from eternity past. He gave his perfect son as a gracious gift to those who despised him. It would please God to see his son crushed under the weight of sin. His son would ask if it was possible to let this cup pass from him, and God's answer to his son was no. 
It's not possible, son. And then whatever happened on the cross was your sin and mine were poured on Jesus. The sky turns black as God the Father turns his back on his own son. And we don't understand completely how that works. But there was some kind of break in the fellowship between the Father and the Son at that moment. And God would hear the anguished cry of his son from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did the father and son go through all this? Because they love us. Out of love for you. Love for me. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God did not sacrifice for us because we loved him. He did it because he loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God's love for us is not, never was, conditional. God never says to his children, if you obey me, I will love you. He does say, if you love me, you will obey God's love for us is not a reward for our being good. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God demonstrated his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want to make sure that you get this. God's love for us was present when there was nothing in us worthy to be loved. God looked at us and could righteously say, they are not worthy of my love. And yet he loved us. We were rebellious, God-hating sinners. And he loved us. He chose to prove his love for us by sacrificing his son, making him the lamb that would be the penalty for our sin, to bridge the gap that existed between us and God, and to make reconciliation possible. If you don't get anything else today, get this. God showed his love for us by sacrificing his greatest treasure to meet our greatest need. God loved us so much that he sacrificed his greatest treasure to meet our greatest need. God could have simply said, I love you. Trust me. Loving one another requires concrete, objective acts. It's not enough just to say it. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? One of your Christian brothers or sisters needs to experience your love and you just say, yeah, I love you. And then you go on your way. What good is that? 1 John 3, 17 and 18, we read it earlier, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? 
Little children, let us not love in word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We are to love one another the way God loves us, and that is a sacrificial love. He did not withhold anything in his expressions of love for us. That brings us to number three. The natural response to God's love for us is to love one another. The natural response to God's love for us is to love one another. Listen to verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God loved you like that, that's how you should love one another. We are to love others the way our Father loves us. The way our Heavenly Father loves us. While we can't die an atoning death for anyone, we can love selflessly, we can love sacrificially, and we can love actively. We can love enough to sacrifice something we hold dear to meet the greatest need of a brother or sister. You know, the greatest needs of many of our brothers and sisters in Christ is just to know that somebody cares about them. Just to know that they're loved. Some need to know that they're loved despite their failure. Some just need to know somebody cares about their struggles, their fears, and their heartaches, and their hurts, and their pains. Defenses that they've suffered. They need to know people care. They need to know people love them. But loving is often messy and we don't want to get involved because it's too messy. And it might, we might get dirty. This is what the Bible means when it talks about love bears all things. Listen, we are great at meeting physical needs as a church. Man, we need to get food for somebody. People sign up and bring food. Somebody needs work done at their house. We got people that will show up and do the work. We need to raise money for something. We raise the money for something. We're good at that. What about those needs that aren't so visible? How are we doing there? How are we at caring for one another's soul? Listen, I can stand up here and give you a list of names and needs, but in reality, most of you already know who they are. You already know of needs that you can meet. You can show love of God for those who are hurting by coming alongside them and helping them bear the weight of their burden. Yeah, I know, we can't, always, we can't take away everybody's burden, but we can help bear the weight of it. Loving people's hard. Loving people's time-consuming. Loving people's messy. Loving people is difficult. Loving people is often painful. And it takes courage 
And it takes humility. And it takes patience. And it takes sacrifice. And that's exactly how God loved us. Patience. Sacrifice. Willing to endure the hurt. Our lives were messy. And he loved us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. This is what I want from all the leadership in our church, the pastors, the elders, is to love people. Even when it's hard, even when it's messy. In fact, especially at those times. Even when they don't respond the way you want them to respond. Because you and I often fail in our response to God. We need to bind up the wounds of those who are hurting and carry them to the cross. How much would it honor God for his children to love one another enough to reach out to those who are suffering under some burden and say, I'm here to help you carry your burden. I'm not here to tell you how to fix your life. I'm here to tell you how to, that I'm here to help you. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Loving one another is the greatest evangelistic tool that we have at our disposal. Listen, you can learn everything there is to know about apologetics, but if you don't love your brother and sister, all your arguments lack authenticity. It doesn't matter how compelling the apologetic is if it's not coming from a heart that loves people. As the recipients of God's love, we have a moral and evangelistic obligation to love one another. This is how others know that we belong to God and who God is. In the beginning, God walked in the garden with those he created till they sinned. And it caused a separation and fellowship between them and God. Fellowship was broken. And then the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people, the children of Israel, in the tabernacle, and then later the temple. But because man was a sinner, only one person was allowed in the presence of God, and then only one day out of the year. But because of the wickedness of the people, the glory of God departed. Then in the Gospels, God once again dwelt among his people in Jesus Christ. They would kill him. They would accuse him. They would deny him. And after his resurrection, he would ascend into heaven, but he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell those who know him. And now to our astonishment... God lives in us and his love is made complete in us 
And God reveals Himself to the world through His children and the way that we love one another. I like what John Stott said about this. He said, quote, We must not stagger at the majesty of this conclusion. God's love, which originates in Himself and was manifested in His Son, is made complete in His people. End quote. In other words, God uses us to reveal Himself and His love to the world. Being loved by God was our greatest need. Now loving God and loving one another is our greatest responsibility as well as our greatest testimony. And we must demonstrate our love for God and our, by our love for one another. God showed his love for us by sacrificing his greatest treasure in order to meet our greatest need. That's the way to we're to love one another. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that it is hard for us to love that way. But Father, we rejoice that you loved us so much and that you spread your love all across our hearts. Father, may we not make excuses for whom we do not love or why we don't love. But Father, let us look for ways to love one another. Use us, Father, to come alongside those who need to see and feel and experience the love of God. Let us show the lost world what loving others looks like. Father, you know my heart, you know my prayers that we'll be a loving people. Father, we need conviction on this. We need to be convicted. We need to repent. We need to love. Father, would you do that mighty work in this church for your glory, for the good of one another as a testimony to this lost and dying world? Father, we're thankful to have correct doctrine. And Lord, we want to lift high your word. And we want to glorify you through the preaching of your word. And we want to be accurate. And Father, we pray that we would never cease to be so. But Father, we need to do it in love. Lord, you know every heart in this room. You know every need in this room. Would you reveal the needs to others who will respond in love? Be they physical, be they emotional, be they spiritual. Father, raise up people to love. Father, make our elders loving men. Men who actively seek to show your love to a hurting people. 
Let us not be content to love those who it's easy to love. Let us be diligent to love those who are difficult to love. So that the world may know who you are. We may be the children of God. For your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand as we close in song?